Our sermon text this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But fornication and impurity of any kind or greed must not even be mentioned among you, as is proper among saints. Entirely out of place is obscene, silly, and vulgar talk, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Be sure of this, that no fornicator or impure person or one who is greedy that is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be associated with them. For once you were in darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what such people do secretly. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For everything becomes visible as light. Therefore it says, sleeper, awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jenny. I'm one of the pastors here. It is so good to be in church with you this morning. Um, I have a couple of announcements for you. We've moved announcements to the beginning of the service, so if you're like, where are the rest of the announcements? That's where they are. Try to be in here by nine. You're going to hear lots of really cool things. Um, But this one feels really important, so we wanted to, or especially important, so we wanted to move it at the front of the sermon, but also... um, it makes the most sense coming from me as the person who's been our youth pastor for um, almost the entirety of this church. We have hired a new youth pastor, and we are so excited, and here he is. <laughs> and magically, he's here. His name is John Michael. We're so excited that he's here. This is like ushering in a new season in this church, and I just could give the sermon on how happy I am uh, that he's here, and, and him specifically, not just any person. Uh, we, we searched long and hard for someone who, uh, who, who we felt was right for the, for the, for the job. Um, there he is. There he is. We're so happy he's here. Speaking of which, if uh, you're not on our email list for youth, today is our first uh, day of youth for the fall, and we would love for your kid to be there if they are in middle school or high school. Middle school will be meeting from 5 to 6.30. We'll be in the atrium out here, um, and then high school will be from 6.30 to 8. So if you have kids that you would like to send here for church, we would love to have them. Uh, John Michael and I will both be there. It'll be a really wonderful time. Secondly, uh, before we begin, is Matthew uh, preached last week and uh, told you all that he was tired and he was going away to pray, and he, he's not lost in the woods. He did get sick between then and now. Um, he's okay, but um, I just wanted to let you know that he uh, he's, he's, was supposed to preach today and is not, and therefore I am uh, preaching a very thrown-together sermon. So, um, so have a lot of grace for me. Um, but, you know, I, I will say I, I don't feel anxious at all because the Word of God speaks for itself. Amen? So if I were to just stand up here and read this text to you for 20 minutes, we would all leave with just enough um, of what we needed for today. 
So, um, so I'm, I, I've been at the beach all week. I'm very happy to be here. Beth and I and our families went away together. If you were here in the beginning, you heard that. So, um, so this, I'm feeling very rested and very happy to be back with you all. So our text today <laughs> uh, may, may feel really heavy to you. <laughs> um, it, and it is, it, it's a heavy text. Paul is not coming with any sort of like uh, gentleness or, you know, he, he's, he has some things to say and, and he is here to say them. Uh, he covers lots of uh, areas of sin in our lives, everything from fornication to dirty jokes to greed. Um, and these prohibitions in the Bible are really uncomfortable for a lot of us, especially in like our culture. Um, our typical instinct is to try to kind of dance around these things, maybe to even deconstruct them or dismiss them as things that um, in history that are outdated for us or to use kinds of uh, linguistic gymnastics to interpret our way around the clear teaching. And this is probably why Paul, in all his wisdom of the Holy Spirit, says in verse 7, don't let anyone deceive you with empty words. There's a tendency in us to kind of sidestep these hard texts. And that tendency is usually not coming from a love of God, but a love of self and a desire to build ourselves up and put ourselves in the driver's seat of what we can and cannot do in our own lives. We shouldn't be surprised that in the kingdom of God, the king might have some rules. That just as in any nation state, um, the kingdom of God is held up by a rule of law. So for some of us, as we begin to read something like this text, some of us say like, well, there it is. There's the thing about Christian religion that I knew. There's the legalism, there's the purity culture, there's all the ways that uh, this, this version of the world wants to control my life and put its thumb on the things that, that I'm doing and want to do in my life. And that's why Paul begins, therefore, as God's beloved children, be imitators of God and live in love. In other words, the foundation of our ability to have this conversation today is the assurance that God loves us as beloved children. And through Christ, he has received us as fully pleasing. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the law that is given to us is not an instrument of judgment or condemnation, but an opportunity to walk in the love of God. It's the thing that motivates this whole thing, the self-sacrificial love of God for us. If we ever wonder just how far God will go for us in his love, we only need to look at Jesus on the cross. And in that sense, the Christian gospel is an overwhelming yes to us. Yes, fully loved, adopted, forgiven, freed. Yes, all things new. Yes, Christ will fill all things. He is our great yes. Yet verse 3 begins with but and then has a series of prohibitions afterwards. The Christian life is not just the yes, but there is also no's. And that's because we live in a world that has fallen. And to be the most loving we can in the world, we have to receive the no's from God and live them out. It actually makes us more loving, more like him. As I was thinking about this list, there might be different things on here that make you feel particularly uncomfortable or uh, confronted. None of us are untouched by this list. We're all guilty, have been guilty, likely will be guilty of some or all of these things. Yet I believe there's a sort of universality in these laws that if they're kept, the entire earth would flourish. You may not agree with me right now, or maybe ever, uh, but it's my belief that it's appropriate to assume that the commandments that are given in the Bible, if they are in fact from God, lead to ultimate human flourishing. The biblical ethic on wealth and power and language and strength and sex 
the way these things are meant to be used in the kingdom of God is actually the way that they most flourish in humanity in the world. The three main areas addressed in verses 3 through 7 are sexual immorality and fornication, coarse language, and covetousness and greed. Notice for starters, I think it's important to say, uh, the integrity of the biblical ethic. This list is really balanced if you look at just these three, three things laid out together. In the prophets, there's a continual calling out of God's people for both greed and sexual impurity, almost as though they go together. Uh, in Amos, who's a minor prophet, if you've never read Amos, you have most certainly heard him, uh, likely, in the words of uh, MLK. He quoted Amos a lot. Amos said this, You sell the poor for a pair of shoes, and you go into harlots. That's how God's prophets spoke to God's people. That there's sort of this two sides of the same coin with greed and sexual immorality. It comes from the same place in the heart of needing to have something or someone. And then we have coarse language, which is generally the most obvious sign that these places in our heart need work. So these two things that are kind of this same, same uh, two sides of the same coin, and then the like fruit that comes out of a heart that's in that place. So that's what we're going to look at today. So just a heads up, as you can probably already guess, we're going to say the word sex a few times. I will talk about it in non-specific language. So don't worry. Greed. Greed is something all of us deal with. Uh, but many of us don't actually think that it's wrong, or at least don't see it as uh, wrong in certain situations. It's a really easy one to kind of like work our way out of. I noticed that when I am in seasons uh, of, when I'm trying to be aware of my greed, like try not to like buy things as soon as I feel like I'm, I'm having a stressful time or in a situation of uncertainty, I will not, no longer do it for things in my house or things for my kid or myself, but I'll just buy more groceries than I need, which is such a silly thing to notice about yourself, and yet it's like so benign, you just almost never noticed that that was happening, and yet I see that on weeks where I'm having a hard time and I'm trying to be a good person, my grocery cart is more full. Marketing works on the premise that if we're happy with what we have, there's something wrong with us clothes, body, school, car, house. We window shop. We put things in our Amazon cart that we don't ever buy. Guilty. Paul says, let there not even be a hint of greed. What that means essentially is the ways in which I think, it, which I'm okay with, with my own greed in my life, it's not okay. It's not okay with God. Building off of what Matthew said last week, God is actually angry about greed. God loves us. And because he loves us, he doesn't shrug his shoulders about greed and write it off. And here's two reasons why. Because greed actually feeds dissatisfaction in our life, which makes us more greedy. Thankfulness is what Paul tells us to do. Instead of being greedy, he, says us, he tells us to be thankful. That a kind of gratitude in our life eases this sense of needing to accumulate, of needing to get more things for ourselves. And secondly, I believe the greatest reason God is angry with our greed is because our greed makes us end up exploiting others to meet our needs or our wants. Our consumption nearly always unjustly affects someone lower down in the supply chain. Consumerism is insatiable coveting for what is for, for more that is willing to exploit others to meet a personal felt need. Secondly, 
obscene, silly, and vulgar talk. Who of us is immune to it? Some of the Greek language in this part of the text means weightless or meaningless, which gives a real picture to words that don't mean anything. Um, that Christians are meant to, human beings, and especially Christians, are meant to have things come out of their mouth that don't just fly away, but like have weight, really mean something and do something. I personally, if you've ever heard me speak before, you've heard me say this, tend towards cynicism in my life. It's how I know that the state of my heart is by what language I'm using mostly, whether that is actual expletives or just negative talk. I can see the fruit of what's going on in my heart by the things that are coming out of my mouth. The Bible says the act of speaking is a creative movement. It can be constructive or destructive. In the words of uh, a friend and a, a parent of children that I love very much, you can be a plus or a minus. That's how your words come out, um, which I think is a very helpful way to think about it. Here's what this kind of language does. It muddies the stream of what is meant to come out of our mouths. We're made for blessing, for building each other up, uh, for healing even with our words. Can you imagine what the world would be like if we used our words to uplift one another and encourage and support rather than to nitpick and criticize and mock and even curse, to condemn, to abuse? How many of us are still moving past words that were spoken over us, words of abuse or words of criticism. They hang on us. Our words really mean something. They, mean, they cost us, us so little and cost others so much. It is important to say, however, that that doesn't mean Christians aren't funny and that you can't laugh. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says that humor is inevitable for Christians because they can't take themselves too seriously. People who take themselves too ser seriously are oftentimes just compensating for insecurity, but the gospel offers full assurance of love. When our ego isn't fragile, or even better, when our ego is out of the way, we can laugh more, and we're meant to. That this like weightiness of our words is not supposed to be a lack of humor, but actually an abundance of it. An abundance of seeing what is good and humorous and light about the world. And then speaking those things into existence. That your best jokes are really good, godly, creative acts. So lastly is fornication and impurity. Fornication speaks to an external action of sexual immorality, and impurity speaks to a sort of internal action or state of being. And what Jesus does for us in the Sermon on the Mount is he tells us that these are the exact same thing, that what happens on the outside and what happens in your heart is equal in the eyes of God. In a place like Decatur in this day and age, this has to be the area with the most energy, uh, we all understand that language can be harmful. We all understand that greed can be harmful. But we're less inclined to think of sex as harmful. We're more comfortable with seeing it through the lens of liberality and individual expression and personal choice. We're living in a day in which if I said to you, ver verbally abusing children is wrong, you would be like, 100% yes. Thank you for saying that. It was, uh, that is an obvious point. But if someone says, if I were to come up here and say, young people viewing pornography is wrong, you may be like, mm, just an expression, just a way of getting out something that's already in there. 
Or if I were to say supporting a minor in gender alteration hormone therapy might be harmful, at the very best, you might say to me, well, that's what you believe. Or at the very worst, you would say, that is oppressive. So how do we begin to talk about these things where definitions of good and bad seem so individual and so relative, especially in a place in the world like today? One of the principles we've inherited from the sexual revolution is that sex can be meaningless and essentially still good. Sex is natural. We see it in the animal kingdom, we say. It can be with anyone so long as it's consensual. We should see it as our birthright, as upright mammals, to do this with consensuality whenever and wherever we want. Every time the church talks about sex, the common response is, it's just sex. It's my body and this person's body. Why does the church have such a negative view of this? It's good and free and not a big deal and just a part of being human. But the thing is, it's never just sex. It's never just sex when it's a kid. It's never just sex when someone that you love is doing it with someone else. It's never just sex when it's with someone who breaks your heart. Here's the hard thing even about that, is that for many of us, at the time, it feels 100% like just sex. The thing that sets, apart, sets us apart from animals in, in our brains is that we are able to be symbolic. We are able to see that there is meaning beyond the thing in front of us, except we have decided that doesn't happen with sex, that it's just the thing, it's just the physical thing, there's nothing happening beyond it. Like all other weighty, important, and beautiful things, time reveals the heart of what the action was. And with sex, sometimes it's bad. Emotional coercion, desperation, abuse, or codependency, there's always a meaning behind the thing. Or it could be love. What the Bible says from beginning to end is that sex is meant to reinforce something that's already true before the bedroom that two people are unconditionally committed to one another in vulnerability. That is the only vessel that is big enough, that is strong enough to hold such a powerful thing. Uh, a writer that I really love says, sex is a fire and fire needs a fireplace. Sex is meant to reinforce something permanent, not for the moment, for the night or for the weekend, and furthermore, the Bible holds up sex within the con context of marriage as a snapshot of the intimacy with God that awaits us in his presence. That the greater good of sex that points to, and what that it points to is only a shadow and a whisper and a foretaste. In that sense, it's not ultimate. It's not in the end and end in and of itself. In fact, according to Jesus, it's not even in the end. I am sorry to tell you, <laughs> There is no sex in heaven. And in the same way that, um, actually not sorry to tell you, uh, that Revelation tells us that we won't need the sun because Christ will be our light, that's what this is ultimately saying, that we won't actually need sex in the end because all that longing and that desire that's in us for that thing, Christ will fill all of those desires and those needs, all those longings. So the last part of this text Paul says, he quotes a hymn from somewhere, which 
one of my most favorite things about the epistles is we hear quotes from hymns that people were singing back then uh, that we kind of know nothing about other than Paul is like, this is a really good song lyric. Let's talk about it. Uh, and that's what this is. He says, sleeper, awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. What I know about these things, these sins, is that I get stuck in cycles of them when I am turned in toward myself, when I'm too self-focused, too self-concerned, too self-pitying. When we're in a hard place, we turn to sex to satisfy the longing that's in us, the frustration that's in us, or we go to Target <laughs> to buy something, uh, to accumulate something, or we talk garbage about someone or something, that the, the, like, the way that we have very easy and nice conversations with one another is that we talk about how bad things are or talk about how miserable we are or talk about how much we dislike someone. These three things are like human defaults for seasons of hardship or uncertainty. And what Christ and the Christian faith teaches us is that even in hardship and uncertainty, through the Holy Spirit, we can turn ourselves toward others. We can still consider others more important than ourselves. And this is not to say don't take care of yourself. Take care of yourself if you're in a hard season. But don't do it through greed, through sex, or through foolish talk. Turn all of these inclinations in you towards others. That is the gift of being a Christian. That is the gift of the Holy Spirit in you. Send dinner to someone. Call someone and tell them you love them. Write an email to a coworker telling them the good job that you've seen them doing. Maybe even pray. Turn that longing, that desperation towards God. Tell them how you're feeling. Turning darkness into light for others is the most basic function, I believe, of the Son of God. His purpose in life is to take dark things and turn them into light for the sake of other people. And that then is your mission as well. Your most basic function as a person who's filled with the same spirit is to take that which is dark in you and could turn toward yourself, your ends, your desires, your wants, and to say, I'm actually going to turn this darkness outward into light towards others. That is what Paul is telling us that we can do through the Spirit in our communities is take these dark things and shine the light of them towards other people. These commands may feel burdensome to you. You may maybe wanted to walk in today and feel super inspired and motivated and instead uh, you got greed, sex, and, and foolish talk. Um, and yet the really good news is that um, we have the same spirit as Christ. We are now called, as Christ is the light, we are called children of light, Paul tells us. Um, Jesus calls us the light of the world, which we only are because he is. It's where we get it from. It's like our family resemblance. It's what we're meant to be to the world and to give to the world. And so my benediction to you today is may you go receive the light of Christ so that you can go be the light of Christ. Amen? Amen. Go in peace. Have a wonderful week. We love you. We'll see you next week. Hello, friends. This is Matthew, the lead pastor at Emmanuel Anglican Church in East Atlanta. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. 
We are disciples of Jesus who are seeking his kingdom and the flourishing of our neighbors. And if you want to find out more about Emmanuel and what's going on, just hop over to our website. The address is Emmanuel, that's with an I, EmmanuelATL.org. Thanks so much. God bless you. Grace and peace.